Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Today we're finishing up this uh series I've called PS51, just an abbreviation for Psalm 51. Um, it's mainly a psalm of repentance. Uh, David uh, wrote this psalm. God inspired him to write this psalm on the other side of his uh, sin with Bathsheba and his uh, sin concerning uh, taking Uriah's life. Um, the background to it, uh, if you want to read it later, I know we're finishing up a series today, but if today's your uh, first day with us and and all, if you want to kind of uh, read why David is writing all this stuff in Psalm 51, if you look at Second Samuel chapter 11, Second Samuel chapter 12, that'll kind of maybe fill in some blanks for you, help you understand uh, why David wrote this Psalm of Repentance. Uh, we don't have time to go read the whole story, so let me kind of tell you uh, that story. Uh, David, of course, who was king of Israel. Normally, he would be with his army whenever his army go out to the battle, but he was not with his army this time. He decided to stay home. And by staying home, he walked out on the roof of his house one night, and he looked across the way, and he sees this beautiful woman by the name of Bathsheba. And she's there bathing herself, and he uh, looks, and he lusts, and then he sends after her. And uh, men from the palace, David's servants, go and get her, bring her to the palace. And David has sex with her, and at some point in time later, David finds out that she's expecting. Problem with that is this. She had a husband. His name was Uriah. Another problem with that is this. David wasn't married to her. So he was missing God's will for his life in that regard also. So David decides to try and cover his sin up in some way. So his first effort to cover his sin up was to send for Uriah on the battlefield, have Uriah come and kind of hang out with David, have a meal with him, talk to him and and everything. And then uh, David says, why don't you go see Bathsheba? Go spend the night with your wife. And he refuses to do that. He stays there outside the door of the palace. And here was his integrity. He said, how can I do this when the rest of the army is at battle? And yet David had done what he did while the rest of the army was at battle. So David's next step was this. He writes a letter to one of his generals, a general by the name of Joab. He gives it to Uriah, no less, and has Uriah to take the letter to Joab. And in that letter is seal Uriah's own Death. Because in the letter, David told Joab to pull back from Uriah during battle and allow him to be killed. So, short of that is, it's the same thing as though he committed murder. Now that Uriah is out of the way, now that Uriah's not on the scene, David thinks, well, I will look like I'm really compassionate and I'll bring Bathsheba in and she'll become one of my wives. And then when she has the baby, it all just looks natural anyway. Problem with that is, God told a prophet by the name of Nathan. And Nathan paid David a visit one day. And Nathan told a story about a lamb, but it really wasn't about a lamb. It was really about Bathsheba. And David gets really indignant that someone had took this man's only lamb. And Nathan points at David and he says, you're the one that's done that. 
We're not really talking about a lamb, David. We're talking about Bathsheba. And you're the one that's done that. And you're the one that's committed murder. So now he's exposed. He, he repents. He says, I've sinned against God. He repents of that. And God promises him that he has set his sin aside. That he has forgiven him. But just maybe David is having trouble forgiving himself. You ever have that trouble? Forgiving yourself? And that leads to this psalm of repentance being written. Something that we're told in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that I've read every Sunday because I think it's more important than we allow it to be in our lives. After it looked like David had kind of covered everything up, the Bible said this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Don't read over that too quick. Matter of fact, let's be honest this morning. How many of us have ever displeased the Lord? Huh? Maybe you need to raise two hands. I would raise both feet, but I would fall up here in front of you and stick all my toes up. Because we've done that. We, we've displeased the Lord. So since we've displeased the Lord, since David had displeased the Lord, he, he writes a psalm of repentance. And I think there's some steps in this psalm of repentance that can help us work our way through restoration. It can help us work our way back from when we have fallen into sin. The, the heading to the psalm, depending on your translation, say, says, creating me a clean heart, O God, or, or a prayer of repentance. And more or less, we've been talking about this all through this series. We've been talking about how God can give us a clean heart even after we sin and how we need to pray prayers of repentance even after we sin. That's more or less what we've been focusing on in the series. Instead of hiding our sin, we need to confess our sins before God. Can I give you the same news flash I gave you last week? God already knows. Amen. You can't really hide sin. God already knows. God expects us to practice repentance. And we need to understand that while God is, is holy, 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 God is also a God of mercy. And I kind of tried to equate that. By giving you some titles in this series, look a little bit like a mathematical equation. To begin with, in part one, we talked about our repentance plus God's mercy is greater than our guilt. You and I need to own up to our sin. We need to be transparent about our sin. We need to ask God to forgive us. We need to cry out for mercy. We need to ask God to cleanse us and give us a clean heart. This is the second week in this series, we talked about how God's truth plus God's wisdom... <clears throat> Can equal peace in our lives. Matter of fact, if we would apply the truth of God and the wisdom of God on the front side of our sin, we would sin less. <laughs> but even after we have fallen into sin, we still need to apply the truth and the wisdom of God to our failure, to our fall, to our sin, so we can experience peace on the other side of our sin. <clears throat> Last week we talked about this. God's forgiveness is greater than sin. We ought to be really thankful for that one. Amen? That God's forgiveness, his forgiveness is so much greater than our sin. <clears throat> and today we're going to wrap up this series, kind of getting to where Psalm 51 is heading all along. And that is that restoration, when we repent of our sin, the restoration equals confidence, equals usability, and equals worship.
God's restoration in our lives can equal confidence, usability, and worship. Stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read our text today. Beginning in verse 13, Psalm 51, then... And that word then is saying a whole lot, guys. Don't read over it too quickly. It's pointing back through pretty much everything that's said in Psalm 51. Then, after we repent of sin, then after God restores us, then after God gives us a clear heart, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us recover from any guilt and failure and sin we have in our life. Father, as believers, because we're still not perfect, Father, we don't ever, we should not ever plan. We should not ever actively choose sin in our lives. But, Father, we're human, and we do fall. And, Father, Satan wants us to to carry that guilt around and believe because we have fallen. There's no hope for us. There's no chance for us. Through our failures, Satan wants to rob our confidence and our usability and even our worship of you. The Father's believers today, we pray you help us to block that attack of Satan. Help us to understand that repentance of our sin brings about restoration, that provides confidence, that provides usability, that helps us to to worship you. And Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ as Savior, we pray that you take these same verses and speak to their heart about how much you love them and how much you gave through your Son on the cross that they might be forgiven. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. David was walking around with a huge amount of guilt in his life. A lot of Bible scholars think it was at least six months while he was trying to hide his sin. He was walking around with with this remorse and this guilt. And maybe he was eating him up inside. You may be there yourself. You may have something... Today in your life that is there and, and you've tried to maybe stuff it down or hide it. You've tried to ignore that it's there. There's some type of sin or guilt in your life and, and you're allowing it to eat you up inside. You, you might be living with remorse and, and, and facing a lost close communion with God in your life because of sin in your life. And what you need to understand is this today. You need to understand as David did, when we repent of that sin, when we'll be honest of that sin, we can experience restoration, which can provide confidence for us, which can increase usability for us, which can result in acceptable worship for us before, before God. 
I want you to notice three main things today as we finish out this series. The, the first one is this. Restoration through repentance. Restoration through repentance occurs through brokenness. We're going to jump down to verse 16 and 17. We'll be back to verse 13 in a minute, but we're not kind of going through this verse by verse. I'm, I'm pulling out some themes that are there. And as we look at what's said in verse 16 through 17, I really think it speaks to the heart of brokenness, how you and I need to have a brokenness before God. We need to have a, a broken spirit before God when we allow sin to creep in. We need to have a, a broken and contrite heart before God. David said, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And then he lets us know what God is pleased with. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. And he says, oh God, you'll not despise those things. We're walking through some of those phrases in, in, in the Hebrew, and that's what David was, was writing in here. He, he's saying, God, you're not going to delight, you're not going to incline or bend just towards sacrifice if it's void of a broken heart, uh, if it's void of brokenness is the point that he's making. He, he's saying, God, if you'd be pleased with just a, a whole bunch of animal sacrifices, he's saying, I would, I would give it, because he uses a phrase there that means to give with the greatest latitude of application. He's saying, God, if that would please you, I would really do that in a big way. But he's saying, you won't be pleased with that. That won't satisfy the debt. He, he's saying, God, burnt offerings, which literally means like stair steps, but because it talked about this smoke from the offering ascending up before God. He said, God, you're not pleased with that. We just burnt offerings. Instead, he's saying the sacrifices of God, the sacrifice that the supreme God, he uses a word that, that refers to the supreme God, the sacrifices that God desires are a broken spirit. God wants us to come before him when we have fallen, we fail, we have sin in our life, and he wants us to have a broken spirit about it. Though the word means to burst or break off in pieces, crushed. It's figurative of life. The, the fact that we've done something, we'll come before God as though our, our life is crushed and, and honestly be remorseful for what we've done. He, he says a broken and contrite heart is what God's desire. And once again, it means to burst or break off in pieces. The Contrite part of the heart means to, to be sore. It's like your heart's bruised. It's crouched. It's just contrite uh, before God. The, the very center of your being. It's like it's broken before God. And then he says, oh God, you won't despise those things. You will not disdain those things or disdain those things or consider that broken heart and broken spirit contemptible or, or scorn those things. You might could boil all that down in, into this statement, all, all that David is saying there. You, you might could compact it into a statement and say something like this. God is more interested in what is inside your heart than he is with religious activity that is void of brokenness. Do you understand what I'm saying there? In other words, all the religious activity in the world, going to church all the time, whatever you want to do, all the religious activity on the outside of your life that you're doing, if it is void of true brokenness before God, that doesn't get God's attention. If you think you got God's attention this morning simply because you thought you would bless God by getting up and putting your clothes on and coming to church, that that would earn something with God, it really only gets God's attention if you came here with brokenness before Him. If you come here with a contrite heart before God. 
You can maybe say it like this. God is more pleased with true heartfelt brokenness than he is with outward displays of religiosity. God's not interested in just us being religious. He's not interested in us just walking around and displaying things in our lives that look religious. God wants to look inside of us, and he does look inside of us, and he wants to see us to have brokenness there, to have a contrite heart, to have a broken spirit when we have fallen in sin before him. We need to see he's holy and we're not. Instead of just trying to be frivolous about our, our sin and think that God somehow is going to wink at our sin and that it doesn't really matter to him. You see, real restoration or communion and fellowship with God comes out of a genuine brokenness over your sin. A broken and contrite heart before God, that's what gains his attention much more than all the religious activity you could ever display. You can show up to church, you can read your Bible, you can do whatever you want to do that you think is very religious, and if you're just doing it and it really doesn't mean anything in your heart, if you really don't have a brokenness before God in your heart, God could care less about all the religious activity that you're doing. Unless you have this, this brokenness before him. See, David was wealthy because he was a king, right? David could have brought sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. He, he's saying, God, if it would please you, I'd bring tons and tons of animals in. If that's really what would please you. If just merely shedding the blood of animals would, would take care of that. But you see, David understood this. The mere shedding of blood of animals meant nothing to God unless it was accompanied with a broken and contrite heart. You can even apply that to Jesus. If you in some flippant way are trying to say, oh, well, I believe in Jesus. So it's okay if I go and sin and do whatever I want to do. You, if you're applying the sacrifice of Jesus in some flippant way and you fail to have a broken and contrite heart over your sin, then you're not getting the point that God wants you to get. That sin put Jesus on the cross. Think about that. No matter how slight it might be, no matter how small the sin it might be, Jesus died on the cross for that sin. Folks, that ought to break our hearts anytime we fall into sin to where we come before God with brokenness. See, David's not trying to undo the importance of the Jewish sacrificial system. God gave them the Jewish sacrificial system. All those sacrifices are a type and picture of who? A type and picture of Jesus. David isn't trying to do away with it. What he's doing is this, though. David is, instead, he's affirming the importance of a repentant heart in a spirit that's yielded to God. God couldn't receive broken animals as sacrifices, as total sacrifices, but he can receive a broken heart. See, that's something you can provide. No matter your level of wealth, no matter who you are, you can have a broken heart before God. You can be concerned about your relationship to God. You can come before God with repentance when you know you've done something you shouldn't do in your life. You might not be able to bring all these animal sacrifices. Hey, that's fine. What God would rather you do is come before him with a broken and contrite heart. Restoration comes through repentance, but we have to have brokenness in our life. Second thing I want you to see is this. Restoration through repentance enables confidence and usability. We're going to go now to the first verse that we read, verse 13. Restoration through repentance enables confidence and usability. 
David said then, not before then. He said, God, after you've forgiven me, God, after you've restored me, God, after you've given me a clean heart, God, after you've brought me beyond this guilt, God, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. The word he uses for teach literally meant to, to goad. In the Middle Eastern culture, the way that, uh, that the Jewish rabbis and Jewish teachers and everything is they were bringing uh, the, the kids up and, and teaching them. Uh, in Middle Eastern culture, they would have a rod there and they'd use that for an incentive. In, in other words, if the teacher is teaching something and they look down and see maybe someone's not paying attention or something, come and take that rod and stick it in your, your ribs and get the attention, kind of wake them up. I experienced a modern day equivalent of that when I was in the sixth and seventh grade. I had a teacher by the name of Carmen Kilby. My brother-in-law is here. You remember Carmen Kilby, don't you, Tim? <laughs> Carmen didn't carry a rod around. Carmen played football for NC State. He was the guard for NC State. Big old muscular guy. He would keep tennis balls at the front. And if he caught you goofing off not paying attention, before you know it, here comes a tennis ball bouncing off of your head. If you ran out of tennis balls, then he would have the eraser from the chalkboard and he would throw that at your head. After he was out of erasers, if he had chalk, he would throw the chalk your direction. And, you know, if that would happen today, people would be up in arms. Good night, you'll put some kid's eye out. If you're really messed up, he had a paddle he made out of a two by six board. That he drilled holes in where the air would pass through and he put metal rods in it to be sure it stayed together. And I saw him, thank God, didn't experience it, but I saw him on more than one occasion to get someone that had really messed up, go up to the blackboard, draw a dot where they had to stand on their tiptoes, put their nose on it. And every time they leaned back, he would take that paddle and help them get back up there. Now, our world hears things like that and they think, well, good, good night, how cruel all that is. Can I tell you something? Carmen Kilby was my favorite teacher of all time. They would do that, trying to get their attention. They, they, they're trying to teach, instruct something, get the attention of the people they're, they're teaching. He said, then I'll teach transgressors, those that have broken away from God's will, those that have expanded beyond what God's will is for their life. They've trespassed what God's will is for their life. The same word even means to quarrel or rebel or, or, or have this re- revolt against God. He, he said, God, then I will teach transgressors your ways, your road, your course of life, your desire will for their life. And, and the root word of it meant to tread or to walk or even to string a bow by stepping on it and bending it. Now, I, I'm going to give my age away here probably because not too many people know about these bows in this day and time. But everybody has compound bows. You know, it's already uh, strung and it, it lets off a lot easier as you pull it back to try and shoot with. I've got one. I understand that. I'm getting old. My shoulder's starting to bother me. I bought a crossbow last year and I'm looking forward to using it this fall. But when I first started hunting, guess what I had? I had a high-tech stick that was laminated that you would step through. You would put your foot on the, your inseam of the foot on the end of the bow and you would bend it around to put the string on it. Except it looked like this because of the bow was so strong. <laughs> and this word here being used for 
God's ways, I think, maybe intimates this without being the root word. God's ways will string our life for us. It has power to our life for us, to where we can live the way that, that, that God desires for us to live our, our lives. He, he said, I'm going to teach sinners their way, and they'll return back to you. They'll be turned back to you. You see, here's what's going on in David's heart. David was God's servant. David wanted to regain his ministry. David wanted to be able to lead his people again. David wanted to to be able to teach people about God again. David, because of the sin in his life that had taken place, he needs this restoration in order for God to give him confidence to where he knows he can serve God again. David wants to be usable by God again. David desired what was best for God so much at one point in his life. David's evaluating this nice palace that he's living in. And at the time, they were still worshiping the tabernacle. And he's looking at this palace and he's saying, God, you've got a tent out there in the wilderness. That's where you reside. And look at this palace you've given me. And he had in his heart that he wanted to build a temple, a big house for God. But he never got to. You want to know why he didn't get to? Because he was a bloody man. That's what the Bible says. But you want a picture of grace and forgiveness? Guess who got to build the temple? Solomon. You know who Solomon is? Solomon's the second son. The first child between David and Bathsheba, who he committed adultery with, died. The second son, Solomon, is the one that God allows to build the temple. Man, that's a picture of grace, isn't it? You want a bigger picture of grace? Here's a bigger picture of grace. Trace out the bloodline of Jesus. And the bloodline of Jesus comes through David and Bathsheba through Solomon. Look at what Romans says. Next slide. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Are you glad to hear that verse? I am because sin abounded in my life. Sin abounded in David's life, but but grace abounded all the more. See, David wanted to be able to also witness to the lost and and the wandering and bring them back to God. That's David's desire, but David's understanding because of what he's done. He doesn't have the confidence and he doesn't feel used or usable by God because of this sin that was in his life. And that's why he's saying then, God, after you've forgiven me, after you've given me a clean heart, after you've purged me with that, with that high of that blood that we talked about last week. Apply this to David's life for a minute. How would David teach sinners the ways of God until David had repented of his own personal sin and experienced God's restoration? Even if a even if the person David is trying to teach didn't know about David's sin. See, David could have thought, all right, I've done this, but they, everybody doesn't know about it. I'm going to go over here and try and serve God and try and teach them about God. Even if that person didn't know what David had done, you want to know who knew? David knew. And that's in his conscience, that, that's in his heart, and he's... And that would hinder him from, from freely trying to teach other people about God. 
The, the guilt that David had in his life was robbing David of effectiveness and teaching others about God's desired course of life, about the way God would have them to, to live their lives. And if the other person did know about David's sin, which by the way, they will. You want to know why they would, why everyone would know? Read the head end of this psalm. David writes this psalm about his own sin and gives it to the worship leader and says, let's sing about it. I told you that a couple of weeks ago. So other people will know about David's sin. So here's what David's going to experience. If David, an unrepentant David, went up to try and teach someone else about the ways of God, and he's goading them, he's trying to teach them about God, that person with full right could have looked at David and said, who do you think you are to tell me how to live my life? Who do you think you are to teach me about God? By the way, I heard what you did, David. You committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then you committed murder by having her husband killed. And then, David, you tried to hide your sin. So see what the blockade that he would run into externally if he tried to teach someone or serve God without repenting of his sin? It was only through repentance and only through restoration and through David having a, a truly broken and contrite heart that David could reposition himself in a way that he could teach others about God, that he could serve God again. And the same thing is true in our lives. For us to position ourselves to where we're usable by God and we have the confidence to serve God on the other side of us falling, on the other side of sin, we have to repent of that sin, be honest about that sin, and ask God to restore us from that to where we have the confidence then to go and do something for God. Because Satan wants to do this. Satan wants to say, remember what you did in high school? Remember what you did six months ago? Remember what you did a year ago? Remember that thought that you had? Remember, remember, remember. Satan wants to point a finger at you and try to keep you from serving God. And when we have fallen into sin, the only avenue we have is to repent of that and ask God to forgive us so we can have confidence to serve God and we can be used by God. I want you to think about that in two ways for a moment. Think about internal confidence. Internal confidence. Internal confidence is a confidence that you need where you've got a clear heart before God. Let's say you've committed some sin and it's not a public sin and you've asked God to forgive you and you've got this clear heart in, your, in, in, in yourself to where you know you're forgiven, you know you've been restored. Guess what that does? That gives you the confidence to go and try and serve God again. But you need that internal confidence. You also need external confidence. Because when we fall, when we have sin that's hit our life, we need to repent of that sin. And God give us external confidence because we're going to run into people as we try and serve God. We're going to run into people as we try and tell people about Jesus. We try and tell people about God and, and God's way for their life. We're going to run into people from time to time that will say, yeah, but I remember what you used to be like. Hey, you remember when we went and did this in high school together? I remember what we used to do. I remember what you used to do. And if you have not been honest with God and honest with others around you about your sin, that puts up a block for that person wanting to receive from you what you're trying to teach them about Jesus. 
But on the other hand, if you've repented to God and you've been public with people that know about your sin and, and you'll say, you know what, you're right. I mean, David could have said this. You're right. I did commit adultery with Bathsheba. You're right. I did cause Uriah to lose his life. You're right about that, that I tried to hide my sin. But God brought me through repentance and God worked on my life and God brought me through that. And God has even taken the guilt away. And that's why I now have the confidence to serve God. David would have opened doors in people's lives that maybe never would have been opened before if they saw him as squeaky clean king of Israel. Well, why is that true? Why is that true in, in our own lives? Here's why it's true. If we admit our sin, repent of our sin, instead of hiding our sin from others, and we're transparent before them, that transparency may even make us more confident and usable by God than ever before. And here's why. It gives us an authenticity before others. You know what part of the problem is we have a church and being Christians in the world? We walk around acting like we're perfect. We walk around acting like we're good at two shoes and, and we're, we're good and everybody else is bad. And we wind up conveying that attitude in the world that we live in to other people and we come off as hypocrites and that's why they don't want to hear anything that we're trying to sell them about Jesus. When if we would be honest about our sin and say, you know what? I did do that. That's who I used to be. Yes, I was a sinner. Yes, I was guilty of that. But I asked God to forgive me and I've asked other people to forgive me. And I'm telling you right now, yes, I did that. But I know God has forgiven me. That gives us an authenticity before other people that they normally don't get from religious people in the world. The weird just maybe they'll want to listen to us because they think, you know what, that person's being honest with me. That person's not trying to act like they're perfect. That person's not trying to act like they've not sinned. That person's not walking around with their nose stuck up in there acting like they're a perfect little Christian. That person is being honest, and because they're being honest and they're being honest with me about whatever's happened in their life, because they're honest with me, you know what? I think I need to hear what they have to say. And you see, here's why they want to hear what you have to say. Because they've got trouble in their life. And they've got junk in their life. And they've got sin in their life. And they need to have the same restoration that you've experienced in your life. But they'll never ever listen to us if we act like everything's okay. If we act like we're, we're fine and squeaky clean little Christians. Third thing I want you to see this morning is this. Restoration through repentance motivates worship, or it should motivate our worship. Look at verse 14 and 15, and then verse 18 and 19. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And then down to verse 18 and 19. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. See, not only did David want to be restored to where he can teach people the ways of God again, 
Not only did he want to have confidence and usability in his life, David wanted to sing the Lord's praises. Think about that for a minute. Who was David? He was even brought in to play the harp for Saul. David was a musician. He was a writer of songs. He was a writer of poetry. He was a writer of psalms. He he was a leader of worship before the people. Even though he wasn't a worship leader, he was still a leader of worship. He was king of the land. He 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 comes in dancing pretty much naked in front of the in front of the Ark of the Covenant as they're bringing it in Jerusalem. And one of his wives even gets angry with him because he's out there acting like a fool. David loved to worship. But he had had that love of worship robbed from him. That joy of worship robbed from him because of his guilt and because of his sin. Restoration ought to motivate us in three ways to worship God for three reasons. Restoration motivates us to worship God because he is righteous. Look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. David is saying, God, snatch me away. Deliver me from all this. Pluck me up from all this that's happened in my life. All the guilt that I have. The the guilt that I have is shed in innocent blood. He uses the phrase Elohim for God, which means the supreme God. He uses it twice there in a row. And he says, then he says, God of my salvation, God, you're the one that's rescued me and, and, and delivered me. You, you've set me free is more or less what he's saying. And, and then he says, because of that, God, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And the, the word tongue there means to speech, but the word for sing aloud, loud means to creak <laughs> or to emit a loud sound or a shout, normally out of joy or triumph. And David is saying, God, I'm going to do that. I'm going to emit a loud sound out of joy and triumph because of your righteousness, God, because you're right, because, God, you're, you're just. See, King David, the, the writer of many songs and psalms, and great appreciation for God's restoration from his sin with Bathsheba, his sin concerning Uriah, he says this. He says, my tongue's going to sing aloud of your righteousness. Apply that to our own lives for a minute. You see, here's the full picture of the righteousness of God. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is righteous. Yes, God judges sin. All that's true. But if you want a full picture of the righteousness of God, here's a full picture of the righteousness of God. God made us knowing that we would fall into sin. God made man, Adam, knowing that we would fall into sin, that he would choose sin. God made us knowing we couldn't redeem ourselves, knowing we cannot save ourselves. So if you want to see a full picture of the righteousness of God, the same God that made us knowing that we would sin, knowing that we couldn't save ourselves, that same God provided for us what we could not do ourselves by putting his son on the cross. That's why God is righteous. That's why God is right. Had God made human beings and he said, I know you're going to sin and I know you're going to make mistakes and I know you can't save yourself there. 
I'm not going to do anything else to help you. That would have been an unrighteous God. But God in full foreknowledge made us, knowing we would sin, also in full foreknowledge, always planned that His Son would be plan A, not plan B. Plan A, that He would send His Son, and His Son would go to the cross and fully pay for our sin on the cross. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that's what makes God righteous. God did right toward us. God delivered us. He helped us escape our sin. He plucked us out of our sin. He snatched us away. God helped us escape the sin debt and the punishment, all the words that we looked at a moment ago. Yeah, God even saved us from blood guiltiness. And before you say, wait a minute, preacher, I've never murdered anyone. I've never did what David did. The Bible says if you've broken any one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So yes, we've even been delivered of of blood guiltiness as far as God's concerned. So because the supreme God, the Elohim God, saved us, rescued us, delivered us, given us victory and set us free through his cross, here's what we ought to do, what David says he's going to do. Our tongues should sing aloud of God's righteousness. Now, let me take away your excuse because I start talking about singing aloud and someone's going to think, well, preacher, here's why I don't sing when John's up there leading. I don't sound very good and I sing off key and I sing out of tune and I don't want anyone really to hear that I'm doing it. Did you hear what the word meant a moment ago? The word meant to creak. All of you can creak. Anybody can sound like a creaking door, like it needs some oil put to it. Anybody can do that. Anybody can make a loud noise. You're not singing trying to get John's approval. You're not singing trying to get someone beside of you to think, my goodness, how good they can sing. You're singing to let God know you appreciate all that he's done for you in Christ. That's why you're singing. So it doesn't matter how good you think you can sing or not sing. We're supposed to be showing appreciation to God for what he's done for us. God in great righteousness, God who is holy, 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 who knew we would sin and we couldn't save ourselves, provided for us what we could not do by putting his son on the cross as a full and final payment for our sins. God's righteousness toward us ought to motivate us to worship. It ought to motivate us to recover from our failure. And ask God to clean us so we can worship Him. Second thing I want you to see about restoration, motivating worship to God is this. Restoration motivates us to worship God, not simply because He's righteous, but because He's worthy. Verse 15, He said, Oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth, and my mouth will declare your praise. He uses a word here in the Hebrew that's only used in the emphatic form to refer to God. Adonai as being the sovereign controller God. It's only used in Hebrew referring to God. And he's saying, God, I want you to open wide. God, I want you to open wide my lips. That phrase open wide means to loosen. It was even used in the Hebrew to talk about a plow breaking up hard ground. You know what needs to happen for some of us? We need to allow the grace of God to be like a plow that breaks up the hard ground of our lips so we'll start praising God like we should. So we will start showing our appreciation to God for all that he has done for us in Christ. He's saying, God, open my lips. 
That, that word lip has the idea in the Hebrew of a natural boundary, like a bank on a, on a stream or a river or, or shore on the shoreline. So you might think of it like this. It's as though we've got a boundary here. And if we keep this thing sealed, we've got a boundary against praising God as we should. What, what we ought to do is open our mouth and proclaim what God has done for us as David does in this psalm. He said, God, my mouth is going to declare, it's going to stand boldly opposite and, and declare and announce and, and expose and explain your praise. God, I'm going to give you laudation is what praise means. God, I, I'm going to sing hymns about you. God, I'm going to be clear. I want to shine. God, I want to make a show. God, I want to make a boast. God, I want to be clamorously foolish and rave and celebrate what you have done for me. Why, 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 do, why do we as human beings act like this? Some people will go to a football game in zero degree weather and pull off their shirt and have their team colors in letters painted on their chest and get up and do the wave and act like a fool and everything else. And then they'll come to church. <laughs> Where the song's going on and we should get over so I can sit down. John cut a song out, I don't want to sit down, John, I'm tired of standing up. <laughs> Preacher, get through the sermon. We've got places to go. I do too. We'll be clamorously foolish. We'll boast and brag about everything else under the sun. Why? 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 Why don't we be clamorously foolish about Jesus and what he's done for us? Why, why, don't we, why don't we give him that kind of appreciation? You, you see, yes, we ought to worship him because he's righteous, because he did for us in righteousness what we can't do for ourselves. But we ought to simply worship God because he's worthy, not because of what God has done only in providing our salvation. We should also worship God simply because he is worthy worthy. Our mouths ought to be open. We ought to declare his praise. We should be clear concerning who God is. We should make God shine all the more through our praise of him. Some of the word studies that were there. We, we should make a show of God, a boast about God. We should be clamorously foolish and rave and celebrate God. Shouldn't we? David does because God forgave him on the front side of the cross. One last thing, and that is restoration. When we repent of our sin and God brings us through restoration, restoration motivates us to worship God by desiring His, His good pleasure. Look what 18 and 19 say. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. There's a lot of word studies there. I'm just going to pass over right now. Because I just want you to get the main point of, of this. You see, this is a really, really personal psalm. David's writing a psalm of repentance to God. 
But it's also a corporate song. Remember what I've already told you? He's writing it out. He gave it to the worship leader and said, let's sing about my sin. So it's going to be a very corporate psalm also used for corporate worship. See, David was not only concerned about his own restoration and his own sin, he was concerned about how his sin had affected the people of Jerusalem. He was concerned about how his sin had affected people around him. He was concerned about how his sin maybe could have even weakened the status of him as king and the nation of Israel to surrounding nations. Think about it for a minute. If you're a surrounding nation king out here and you're thinking about having a meeting with David, trying to do some business with David, and you find out he took a man's wife and had him murdered, that might give you second thoughts about how you want to relate to David. Hmm? People are worried about what Trump's going to say. You know, when they're asking, how would you like it that he, you know, committed murder this past week? It would affect the way other countries would view him, is what I'm saying. And David was concerned about that. That's why he's saying, God, I want you to build up the walls of Jerusalem. God, I want you to do good towards Zion in your good pleasure. See, here's a lesson for us about restoration. Restoration is not just about us. Restoration is about God himself. We need to desire God's good pleasure. Our restoration shouldn't be just about God get me off the hook. God, God get me beyond this. God make the guilt go away. Our restoration ought to be in this light also. God help me get over my sin. Help me, God restore me from all that's happening in my life for your good pleasure. God, so some good things can happen for you. God, I want your best for Jerusalem. I want your best for the people. I want your, your best for the land. That's, that's who David was as king. He's recognizing his repentance and his restoration needed to be about desiring God's good pleasure and it needed to be about other people also because other people would have been hurt by this sin that David committed. The whole nation probably was hurt because he was their king when this became public. Let me give you an illustration to explain that. Let's say I leave here today. And I go down the road and on my way home, I start thinking, you know what? I'm going to rob a convenience store. I'm just going to stop and rob a convenience store, get some money, come out. Maybe tomorrow I think, yeah, I, I like that pretty good. I'm going to rob a bank now. Or maybe I'm down at the beach and I, I look at there and there's this really, really pretty woman and I start thinking, you know, well, I wonder if I could talk to her and get her off the side and no one would know about it and, and everything like that. But then what happens if all of that, if I had done that, if I did something like that and all of that became public, it would hurt me, but be honest, it would hurt you too, wouldn't it? And it would kill me that I'd hurt you. That's what David is more or less saying here. He said, God, what I've done didn't just affect me. God, I want what's best for you. I I want your best for the people of Jerusalem. God, help restore me. But God, yes, help restore the whole nation of Israel. Then you'll receive the offerings that we're 
wanting to offer to you. David very much wanted God to be pleased with those sacrifices, but it can only happen when David and the people had a broken and contrite heart before God. Real worship involves this, guys. Real worship involves wanting God's good pleasure and being concerned about what God desires and being concerned about others. That's a picture of real worship. For us to be concerned about God and others. Today we bring this series to a close. I really wish there were more verses in Psalm 51. And I'm not saying that's not sufficient, it is. I have enjoyed this series, but it's not a series meant to be enjoyable necessarily. I've been helped by this series. Have you been helped by this series? Now, just because we bring this series to an end, here's here's the deal with that. That doesn't mean we need to stop applying the principles that we have heard in Psalm 51 to our lives. I'm pretty much convinced that Psalm 51 may be one of the most important passages in all the Bible about repentance and restoration and getting over our guilt. So we need to continue to apply that to our lives. And here's why. There will be times that we desperately need forgiveness. Amen? You're not going to be perfect the rest of your life. There are going to be times you desperately need forgiveness. There are going to be times you desperately need to get rid of the guilt that's haunting you in your life. There will be times that you need to know your repentance plus God's mercy is greater than your guilt. There will be times you need to know that God's truth plus God's wisdom can equal peace in your life. There'll be times that you need to know, even as a believer, someone already say that you'll need to know God's forgiveness is greater than my sin. There'll be times you need to know that God's restoration can bring about confidence in your life, can bring about usability in your life, and can restore worship in your life. So where are you today in regards to all this? Are you someone that's been trying to hide something, shove it down, keep it concealed? God knows and you know. You'll never have peace until you deal with it right. You'll never have the confidence to serve God and be used by God until you deal with it right. To where you understand now you can be confident to approach others. Now you can teach sinners their ways. Now you can teach people about God. Where are you in this as a believer? Is there, is there something that you've been holding on to that you think no one knows about? Maybe today during this invitation time, you need to say, God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me. God, I'm repenting of this. God, I'm turning away from it. God, I need your restoration. Because God, I want to have confidence to serve you. I want to be used to serve you. God, I want to have freedom to worship you. And maybe you're in this room today and you don't know Christ as your Savior. And maybe the first time you need to understand that God loves you so much in righteousness. He did for you what you can't do for yourself. He made you knowing you had sinned and he put his son on a cross in advance to where you can be forgiven. That's how righteous God is. I want us to close by looking at a passage of scripture and a, and a verse of scripture that we've seen several times. But I think we really need to close out the series looking at this. We've seen this several times in this series. Look at Psalm 32, written by David. Apply it to all we've talked about in Psalm 51. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Think about that. 
If your transgression, your sin is forgiven, you're blessed. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Here's doctrinally what the Bible teaches. Here's theologically what the Bible teaches. If you, in fact, really know Christ as your Savior, when God looks at you, He doesn't see your sin at all. He sees the very righteousness of His Son. He doesn't even know your iniquities there. And in whose spirit there's no deceit. And then listen to David's testimony. For when I kept silent, when I failed to repent of my sin, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. See, he's saying, think about what I just said. And then he says this in verse 5. Read what he says there. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then notice this. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Everyone here ought to shout hallelujah. And then in 1 John, in the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from part of our sin. Cleanses us from all our sin. Father, forgive us when we fall when we fail ye. Forgive us when we give in to temptation. God, help us, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 6, to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Help us to begin viewing ourselves as corpses that's been crucified with Christ and and we're not going to sin. Father, even in our best from time to time, that happens. No one's immune. David, a man after your own heart, wasn't immune. David committed terrible, tragic sin before you. And yet you forgave him. And you gave him the words of this powerful Psalm 51 that teaches us about repentance and restoration. Father, I pray you search all of our hearts right now during this time. And Father, if if there's anything we've hidden, anything we've pushed down, anything we've ignored anything we're trying to keep from you. Help us to realize how futile that is, how impossible that is, because you already know. Father, is anything we're carrying around in our hearts as believers that's, that's causing guilt and keeping us from having the freedom to, to serve you and the confidence to serve you and to worship you as, as we should. God, restore us this morning. Help us to be honest with whatever it is and bring it before you. And God, restore us so we can so we can serve you with confidence, so we can worship you like, like, like we desire, like you desire. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ, help them right now to recognize how supremely you've loved them. Help them to admit that they've sinned, as we all have, we've all sinned. But help them also to understand, give them the faith that they need to trust in the fact that Jesus paid fully for all their sin on the cross. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand. God speaks to you. If you need to come and kneel and pray, we invite you to do that this morning.
If you need to come and ask questions about what it means to receive Christ as Savior, we invite you to do that this morning. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.